And so we continue our series on uh, the letter to the seven churches uh, in Revelation. Uh, what we consider to be, uh, to some of us, we are familiar with uh, this book. This is the last book uh, of the Bible. Uh, we consider this to be a prophetic or apocalyptic book, but that also includes uh, letters to actual seven churches uh, in first uh, century. So there's a letter embedded in a prophetic apocalyptic book. In fact, those are the first uh, three chapters uh, of uh, this last book. But unlike the other epistles which we see in the New Testament, Jesus is the one speaking directly to the churches here versus Paul writing to Corinthians or Galatians, Philippians, or Peter to the exiles in Asia Minor, Jesus is the one uh, speaking to the churches here. And he is giving them their true condition, what they actually look like. And he calls them to specific action, uh, action plans or action steps, but also gives them comfort as they remain uh, faithful. So in the past few Sundays, we went through one of the churches. The first church is Ephesus. And if you recall, that church was doctrinally robust. They are faithful to call out uh, false teachings in their community. But the problem was they lost their affection towards God and others. The opposite of that, we have Smyrna. And Smyrna is considered a poor and persecuted church. But through the words of the Lord, they are actually rich. They are actually rich. And this morning, we are going to look at the third church in these uh, seven letters to the Asia Minor. And the, the name of the, the community, the city, is Pergamum or Pergamos or Pergamon. Okay? Uh, but we see in our Bible, Pergamum. And if I'm going to describe this church this is a church that is compromised. A church that is compromised. And if, as we go through that pattern of uh, Jesus speaking to these churches, let me mention four things about this church, this letter uh, of Jesus to uh, the believers in Pergamum. Number one, we're going to look at the commendation that they receive uh, from the Lord. We will also see the correction against them. We will also look at the call to action of Jesus for the church and the believers in Pergamum. And lastly, we will look at the comfort uh, for the church in Pergamum. And what you will notice as we go along this series is that Pergamum is not the only compromised church. In the seven churches, Pergamum is not the only compromised church. We will look at them as we move along. In fact, out of the seven churches, three of them are considered compromised in different capacities, in different circumstances. Three out of seven. Almost half. Are compromised churches. You know what we can learn from that 
is this, that even faithful churches and even faithful Christians are susceptible to the danger of compromise. Even if you consider yourself to be a faithful church or a faithful Christian, there is always a, dang, a danger of compromise. And the root of this compromise, as we will see, as we will move along and we will tackle some of that here today, the root of that compromise is misplaced fear. They fear the wrong things. But Jesus teaches us here that as the one who holds the full and final authority over everything, he deserves our true fear, our reverential fear, and that we will find satisfaction, validation, acceptance, and identity in Christ alone. And that's basically the, the main thing that I want for us to, to learn today as we go through these uh, four, four C's. Let's, let me start with the commendation even though this is a compromised church, we, we will see in a bit, there's something commendable uh, about them. Two things, actually, that's commendable for the church in Pergamum. Number one, they live in difficulty because of their faith. They live in difficulty because they're Christians. Again, look at our text. Jesus, the Lord says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. And we, we always see that, like, at least for the, the, the three churches that we have been going through, there's always uh, that statement that Jesus says, I know. I know. In Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your works. In Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your affliction and poverty. But in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. Alam ko kung saan ka nakatira. Like if you open your Facebook Messenger and a stranger puts there, I know your address. How would you respond? But this is not a stranger speaking. The one who speaks to them, the one who tells them, I know where you dwell, is the one who holds the seven stars, the one who holds the seven lampstands. He is the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. And again, the pattern of these letters, Jesus identifies himself with a specific description, unique to a specific church. And that signifies authority and power. I am the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Oh, so when Jesus says, I know where, where you dwell, he is saying, I am fully aware of the place you live your Christian lives. I know it. He knows what's going on there. He knows who's the mayor. He knows the president. He knows the vice president. How they spend their money. He knows what's going on in that particular community. He knows, Jesus knows, that this is a place where it is difficult to be a Christian. Why was this uh, a place difficult to be a Christian? What makes this place difficult to be a Christian? 
You know what Jesus' description of this place? This is Satan's throne. <laughs> but let's try to understand what's going on here. Just a little like historical background of uh, this, uh, this place. We have learned about Ephesus and Smyrna, right? And unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, they are port cities, meaning they are cities where you can dock your ships and everything. So meaning it's going to be a center of trade and economics and uh, exchange of ideas. Pergamum, on the other hand, is high up on a mountain. It's on a mountain. You are overlooking the region. Pergamum has one of the largest, uh, what do you call it, an open theater? A coliseum, I think? Amphitheater, yeah. Amphitheater. It has the largest in that region. They have the mega church there. About 15,000. It sits high in the mountain. They're not an economic uh, trade uh, location, but they're big on something else. They're big on worship. What you can find, the reason why they are high up in the mountain is because there are many temples there. Not one, not two, not three, not four, not five. You can see a temple of Zeus there. You can see a temple of Dionysus. And Dionysus is a, temp, uh, is a, a, a god for celebrations, partying and everything. Uh, you have a, a, the god for Demeter. You have the god for Athe uh, a temple for Athena. You have a specific, this is unique, you have uh, the temple for Asclepius. And Asclepius is the, uh, the god for healing. And if you, for those who are in the medical field, the, the, the snake with the wings and staff, uh, that's coming from Asclepius. Because in that temple, snakes are roaming around. Not only that, not just the Greek gods, there's also a temple for the emperor. So you will, I could say this is a place of religious diversity. You can worship the God that you like. If you like to worship uh, Zeus this week, go ahead. Um, Athena next week, go ahead. Dionysus, if you want to party there, go ahead. If you want to worship the emperor, go ahead. This is a center for religious diversity. This is the who's who of pagan worship. Jesus says this is where this Satan's throne is. What a strong description, don't you think? What a strong description to consider a city Satan's throne. And actually, I struggled to, I hesitated to name a modern city as comparison for Pergamum because you might think or you might conclude 
that I'm implying that that place is where Satan's throne is today? But I will go ahead anyway. <laughs> I will go ahead anyway. Just for illustration's sake. Okay, just for illustration's sake. You know, when I think of a place where diversity is celebrated, when I think of a place where idols flourish, where there are names of people we look up to are everywhere, I think of Hollywood. I think of Hollywood. You know, statistically, a case can be made that there's a better chance for Christianity to flourish in China or in Iran than in Hollywood. In, in that place, you're more than welcome to express your religious uh, preference, except if you're Christian. If you're Christian, keep it to yourself. That's how it was with Pergamum. Keep in mind, Christians are welcome there. That's, fact, that's the reason why they live there. But one scholar said, believers in Pergamum were not persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. They were persecuted because of their exclusive faith in Jesus. They will worship God but they will worship the one true living God alone. So their friends, uh, their neighbors, the people there in the community will look at them and say, look how weird these guys are. They have, we have all these, uh, all these gods at our disposal and they will not worship them? So weird. And Jesus commends them that, well, because of that. That they live in difficulty because of their faith. And second commendable thing for them is that they live differently. So number one, they live in difficulty. Number two, they live differently because they are Christians. They don't have a temple for their God. They don't have images for their God. They don't worship other gods. And so because of that, in that community, they are considered atheists. Christians in first century are called atheists. You know why? Because they don't have idols. They don't have temples. And of course, when people call them atheists thinking that they don't believe in gods, that's false. Because they do believe and they do worship the one true living God. And it is with that truth that they get persecuted. And Jesus commends them specifically for this in verse 13. Even though this is what's happening, this is where you live, you hold fast my name. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, 
my faithful witness. So we don't know uh, who this guy is, but obviously we see that he is, as Jesus says, my faithful witness. And he was killed in this place. He was killed in, in Pergamum. And tradition uh, will tell us that Antipas was roasted to death. He was roasted to death. He was put in a metal bowl inside it. And he was roasted inside it. The idea is, as he's groaning, it's as if the bull is alive and groaning. And even then, they stayed faithful. They saw someone in their ranks get killed so even though they live in difficulty even though they live differently they stay faithful and that's commendable the lord commends them for it friends isn't that what is expected from every christian that when you are a christian you are expected to live differently and by by that it will mean that you will live in difficulty and so there will there's going to be a disconnect when we feel like living differently and living in difficulty is not the christian way but that's how it was experienced by the people in pergamum Christians are noticeably distinct from the culture that they dwell. That a Christian is set apart. That a Christian is holy. He is set apart. And this is not just a call to Pergamum. This has always been God's plan for his people. I will quote uh, an Old Testament text in Exodus. And you will see, we will always go back to a, 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 a biblical historical time in the wilderness. In Exodus 19, God speaking here to Moses, and he, uh, God is saying, Moses, tell these to the, the people uh, of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, even though all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a set-apart nation. Friends, that has always been the case for Christians that we ought to live differently and that would mean we will live in difficulty we ought to expect it jesus called jesus told this to his disciples in this life you will have troubles paul talked about this in timothy when he said if you want to live godly lives you will be persecuted expect it and so the christian way is not to get around that difficulty but to get through it by god's grace and this is important because this this leads us to our second point 
yung context that they are meant to live differently. They are meant to live differently. And here's the correction against them. Verse 14. Yes, I have something to commend to you about, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, meaning in the same way, you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we have heard of this group in the letter to, the, the, uh, to Ephesus, right? They were mentioned there, although we don't know uh, now what that exactly looked like, but it, it seems, it appears that these are groups who are merging pagan worship and Christian doctrine. And they're saying, you know, it's, it's totally fine that you, that you celebrate Zeus and celebrate Jesus as well. But aside from that, he, Jesus is not just, again, talking about the Nicolaitans. He mentioned an Old Testament incident. That even in the Old Testament, this has been an offense to God. Who are, who are these people? Who, who's Balaam? Who's Balak? Well, Jesus is referring to what happened in the wilderness. And in Numbers 22, you will see this in, in the Old Testament. In, in the book of Numbers, while uh, the Israelites were about to enter uh, the Promised Land, they were in the plains of Jordan. And Balak, the king of Moab, was intimidated by the size and the power of the God of Israel. So what did Balak, the king of Moab, uh, do? He hired a prophet. The prophet's name is Balaam. Sabi niya kay Balaam, could you uh, utter curses towards uh, the Israelites so that they will go away from me? Long story short, instead of cursing, Balaam blessed Israel. So, Balak was not successful. Balaam was not successful to curse Israel, uh, Israelites. But if you can't beat them, join them. That's the strategy. You know what happened in chapter 25? They tried a different tactic. Let me read Numbers 25. While Israel lived in that place, in the plains of Jordan, the people, the Israelites, began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They intermarried with the daughters of Moab. These ladies invited the Israelites to sacrifice for their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, and so Israel yoked himself. They intermarried to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And as a result, a plague came in and about 24,000 
was killed. So when Jesus was referring to what ha what's been happening in in Pergamum where they are holding on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, it's, he's saying it's the same thing that happened in the wilderness with Balak and Balaam. And this account should serve as a warning for Pergamum and even for us today that compromise is dangerous. Compromise is even deadly. Is this what's happening in Pergamum? What does that look like? Well, within the church, as Jesus would say, it's not all of them, but there's just some, right? Within the church in Pergamum, some are really professing their faith in Jesus, but they live more like the people in Pergamum. They live more like that city, and they live less like Christians. Some of them have believed in the false teaching that you can consider yourself Christian and practice pagan worship. Basically, when Jesus says they, have, they hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, they are embracing something that the Lord hates. Some of them live lives that are indistinguishable. It's a big word, but I want to use that because it's... That's something I experienced. Your life was indistinguishable from the world you live in. And there was a season in my life when I was asked, oh, what do you do on weekends? So I say, this was a time when I was uh, in the corporate world. Uh, yeah, I, I go to church. So uh, my office mate said, a Christian ka? Hindi halata. That was a blow to me. I was living a life that it was indistinguishable from the world I live in. And many years ago, we have a we have a we have a term for this. We, it's called secret agents. <laughs> You're you're in you're you're in the society, but they don't know you're 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 a spy. <laughs> what would cause someone at that time who believes in that Jesus resurrected from the grave, that Jesus is Lord, would go on and live and worship Zeus or Dionysus? What would cause a Christian today? To act as if he's not Christian at all. Maybe the lure of society is too much to resist. Maybe just society is just so attractive. Maybe I think that, you know, the world is uh, not really harmful for me. Or maybe I'm afraid that if I don't adapt, I will either be irrelevant or worse, I will not survive. So maybe some of the people in Pergamum think that if we are going to survive in this place where Satan dwells, we will have to adapt. 
let me give a you know a modern day uh, expression of that. So for churches and organizations would say, you know, those we want to reach will not be attracted unless we look like them. We will not be relevant. We are concerned that we will not be relevant unless we speak the language. They will not come to our church if we don't have a smoke machine. Maybe let's speak the language a little bit. Or maybe as individuals, you know, I'm afraid that I will not find good jobs because I'm a Christian, so I can only find good jobs if I let go of my Christian values. If I set it aside a little bit, I can get promoted. If I can set it aside a little bit, you know, I can get more jobs. Projects will come in. If I'm a content creator, I will produce content that's provocative. You know, whatever it is, what's happening in Pergamum or what's happening even for us today, whatever the motivation is, for me, that implies that I look at Christ and conclude with my actions that Christ is really not enough. Christ is really not enough. My fear for my survival, my fear for my satisfaction, my fear for society's validation of me and my identity connected with the society is, is in danger because of my union with Christ. And so therefore, God will understand the money. And that for me means maybe Christ is not really enough. And so the Lord issues a strong call to action because of this. Therefore, repent, he says in verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Judgment, friends, judgment starts with the household of God. Look at that. Repent or else. Jesus warns them, you know, this is going to be a painful discipline if you don't turn around from your sinful ways. And I want you to pay attention to this call to, call to action. Two things. Number one, Jesus did not command them to get out of Pergamum. Okay? Jesus is not telling them, you know what? That's, that's where Satan dwells. Better to get out. Punta ka na lang ng Smyrna. Punta ka lang ng Ephesus. At least doon, they reject the Nicolaitans. Jesus did not tell them that. In fact, it's commendable that they are staying faithful in that place. The call to action is not for them to move out of the city. The call to action is to bring that influence of the city out of their system. Do you see the difference? 
you know, one, one, uh, uh, one uh, professor said, it's not so much that uh, they, they, they are so much in Pergamum, but so much of Pergamum is in them. That's what's happening. And so the call to action is not for them to move, but to bring that out in repentance, to bring the influence of the city out of their system. Number two, do you notice that the call to repentance is for all of them? Even though there were faithful uh, believers in that community, and there are some, talagang specifically nakalagay in our text, some have been, you know, being lured by the world. Jesus did not say, those who are being lured by the world, you repent. Itong mga faithful ones, sige, okay na kayo. <laughs> okay na kayo. And so those who are staying faithful, holding fast to the name of Jesus, they're not saying, Sige nga, Lord, <laughs> i-judge mo nga sila. Grabe yung mga yan. You know what Jesus is telling all of them? Repent. Repent. Hala, bakit damay yung mga faithful? <laughs> bakit sila nadamay? Well, some of those who are being swayed by the false teaching, they have compromised their faith. But yes, there, there are those who remain faithful. But they remain faithful, but they turn a blind eye to those who are being influenced. They failed to correct those who are being lured by the world. So this call is for all people in Pergamum. Not just those who compromise their faith. Friends, this does not mean we repent for other people's sin. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, and it's not for us to say, Lord, forgive me for the sin of my brother. That's not the point. Repentance is still a personal, individual accountability. But this means those who fail to speak out, those who, who fail to speak the truth in love, those who fail to correct their brothers and sisters are equally accountable and they need to repent as well. If I fail to shepherd someone who I see is being lured by the world, I need to repent of it. And friends, this is what it means to be in a covenant community. This is what it means for us to commit together and agree together that we will live for the Lord. That we make a commitment to live differently even if it means we will live in difficulty. And so Christian correction is necessary so that we can remain faithful together. Let me repeat that. Christian correction is necessary 
so that we can remain faithful together. So my plea, friends, brothers and sisters, don't feel that you're being attacked if you're being corrected. And for those who desire to correct their brothers and sisters, you know, as, we, as it is being received as an act of love, you know, we, we proceed with caution and really love and not with pride. And this is a call for all of us. And we have to understand that God's call for repentance is really his offer of grace. Because he could, he could not just say, he could not even just give a warning. Just, no, he can just simply judge us and he's, he's, he's right. But for him to call us to repentance is an act of grace from God. And what will help us in our repentance? And this is the fourth point, the comfort for uh, the believers in Pergamum. Let me read the last verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one except the one who receives it. No one knows except the one who receives it. Now, three things, what you see here, that Jesus will give. Number one, manna, hidden manna. Again, this is an Old Testament reference in, in the wilderness. A white stone. We are not completely sure what that is, but I'll try to explain it a bit. It has most likely has a significant meaning for uh, the first century believers, especially in Pergamum. Third thing, a new name. To the one who conquers, they will receive hidden manna, a white stone, a new name. Ano yan? <laughs> Again, we need to consider as we read through Revelation, the symbolic nature of these things, as we try to understand what they mean. So for those who are uh, need, need a refresher, or those who want some clarity, ano yung mana? Hindi yung mana na ano, ah, yung pinamana sa'yo ng tatay mo. <laughs> mana, in, in fact, what, what mana specifically means, what is it? <laughs> So manna, it was like a coriander seed. It's white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Interestingly, this is the food that the Israelites received in the wilderness. They did not work for this. God provided it for them. When they wake up in the morning, it's there. And God gave it to Israelites as they were grumbling. That's manna. What's that white stone? Well, frankly, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, if you look at, you know, if, uh, first century uh, context, you know, some people receive uh, an invitation on a stone with your name on it. So it feels like, and this is going to be just a, 
a shot at it, perhaps it serves as an, an invitation, like a key card to enter through a door. And that key card has your name on it. But it's not your old name, it's a new name. No one knows about it but you. No kayong pangalan nyo. You know, for me, these three things imply three things as well. Number one, satisfaction. Number two, acceptance. Number three, identity. Jesus comforts them in saying that I am the one who gives you satisfaction, acceptance, and identity. And for a Christian, those can be found in Christ alone. He is the dispenser of that. That in Him we find nourishment, satisfaction. In Him we find acceptance, white stone. In Him we find new name. You see, Christians in Pergamum may have thought that their society will provide some form of satisfaction. That, that if we don't compromise, we will not be able to provide for our needs. They might thought, the Christians in Pergamo might have thought that if we don't compromise, we will not be accepted by society. Christians in Pergamo might have thought that their society provides them some form of identity. That if we don't compromise, we don't know who we are. They think, sometimes we think, that the world provides what our hearts are aspiring we think it's coming from our job. We think it's coming from our family or our relationships. We think it's coming from our success. And Jesus says, I'm the bestower of all those things. And here's the good news. If you find yourself like a Christian in Pergamum, in danger of longing for these things, for the society to provide you these things, here's the good news. There's nothing like Christian satisfaction. Because Jesus is the bread from heaven that satisfies and nourishes us completely. Friends, there's nothing like Christian acceptance that we are received by God as sons and daughters, not because we have gained it, not because by our good works, we receive it by the good work of the only begotten Son who was rejected so that we can be accepted. And friends, lastly, there is nothing like the Christian identity. No need to look for society or to look within yourself to define who you are. When you say, I identify as blank, and if your basis is society or yourself, there's a danger of ru ruining yourself. The beauty of Christian identity is that Christ bestows that identity for you and me. And you know what identity is that? 
it's as if God looks at you the way He looks at His Son. That you are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. That you are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Friends, there's nothing like Christian satisfaction, acceptance, and identity. We don't have to fear and go through compromise just to long for these things. We can find them in Christ. Let me end by quoting C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He said, Your real new self, because of your union with Christ, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for Him. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him. And with Him, everything else thrown in. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we are in danger of adapting to the world that we live in, thank you for the grace of repentance to turn away from it. Thank you for your grace that reminds us that we don't have to long for these things and look for it in our world when these things are available for us because of Jesus. Lord, forgive us when we have compromised our faith and strengthen us to stand firm and hold fast to your name. Lord, we ask when we are, live in a place where it's difficult to be a Christian, we pray, Lord God, that you will remind us of what we have in Christ and that will strengthen us to live differently the way you intended it to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.